Hi, this is Ryan Britt. I'm the author of Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. It goes without saying that the Star Trek franchise is one with a tremendous lineage. It was groundbreaking when it first aired, and it remains on the cutting edge of science fiction when it comes to visual effects, social commentary, and, well, just being an epic thing to binge watch. With over five decades of stories, it can be difficult to figure out how to learn more about this series, but today's guest has a new book that chronicles the entire account. Ryan Britt is the entertainment editor on Fatherly and a contributor over on Inverse, and has also written for Esquire, Den of Geek, the official Star Trek website, and a bunch of other great places, both geeky and mainstream. He's also the author of a new book called Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. This book covers the long history and legacy of Star Trek in an easy-to-read and extremely fun way including exclusive interviews that give you the stories straight from the horse's mouth, or in some cases, Talaxians and Bajorans. It's not your average Star Trek book, and it really brings a different voice to the story that many of us by now know pretty well. I read it before the interview, and besides being informative and fun, it's also accessible for any level of Star Trek fan. There's no gatekeeping here. This is really the best way to go into the deep end of Star Trek without sinking. So today, we're talking Trek, all things sci-fi, and everything in between parallel dimensions. So, as the title of the book already said, let's set phasers on stun and get ready to learn about Star Trek and sci-fi from a new perspective with Ryan Britt. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our Teespring store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we have a man who you know as a writer on sites like Fatherly, Inverse, Den of Geek, and many other notable places, as well as the author of the recently released book, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World, which is out and available now from Penguin Random House. We're joined by Mr. Ryan Britt. Ryan, how's it going today? Hello, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. It's good to meet you. I, I'm very excited. You know, I just read the book recently, and you know the book has been out for a little bit, but it's still fairly new. And uh, I'm very glad to have you here, just so we can remind our, my audience about this thing because it's yeah, it's a great read. So I'm excited to pick your brain about Star Trek and everything else you know about sci-fi because your knowledge is a, a literal encyclopedia. Well, that's that's very kind. Um, but you know, a writer is only as good as his research, and you know, even this book is you know, it's nothing's perfect, <laughs> just like Star Trek. Don't you ruin know. the magic, Ryan. I'm trying to make it look good here. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, that's not, not, I, thank you. I should just say thank you. <laughs> so yeah, let me uh, just jump on into things here and uh, start with this question. Here, I ask all my guests, uh, and that's Ryan. What's your earliest memory of Star Trek? And I would imagine for you, this goes deep. My earliest memory of Star Trek is um, probably Space Seed actually, um, because uh, that's a great question. And I probably should have explored it in the book. Um, that's because I, yeah, for, well, I'm, I might do a paperback, you know, revised edition. So much Trek has happened um, since I finished the book, but um, I was aware of the, of the original series as a six year old turning seven when the next generation was coming out in 87, I was born in 81. And so my earliest memory is the sleeper ship image. Um, where you can actually, and so, and I remember thinking about that, um, when I was being sort of told there was a new Star Trek. So probably Space Seed, because I remember the sleeper ship really, really well. Um, and I don't think I necessarily saw it in its entirety. I mean, not super appropriate for a six-year-old. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you have kids, but I have a five-year-old now, and it's sort of like trying to figure out which Treks to show to her is really fun, but challenging sometimes. Um, so Space Seed, I guess. Wow, interesting episode of all the ones to pick. That's uh, a good one. I mean, I don't think I picked it. <laughs> it worked out <laughs> you know? that way, though. Yeah, yeah it just, worked you know, out. It worked out. Yeah. Whatever fate, whatever destiny I had planned for you, space seed was the way to go. Good episode. Good, good choice, destiny. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, let's get a little bit more background information about you before we start talking about all the different things that you do. Uh, and I want to start here, just typical secret origin of Ryan Brick question. Uh, so where were you born? Who were your parents, and what did they do? And what did little Ryan want to be when he grew up? Yeah, I was born in uh, Mesa, Arizona. So uh, I, I say it's either the planet Vulcan, Tatooine, or Arrakis. Sort of take your pick. What's the difference? Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, how things turn out for those various planets is the difference. Quantity of suns, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. the quantity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a, a desert world. Um, my mom was a school teacher, and my dad was a photographer. And um, what I wanted to be. I suppose at an early age was either, you know, paleontologist or astronaut. Um, but I did, I did want to be a writer at a pretty early age. Like I was interested in being a writer, um, you know, throughout my teens, uh, you know, my, in my, my 12, 13, like I, I'm writing a lot of um, science fiction stories and submitting them, you know, even when I was like not 18, hmm. um, you know, none of them were published, you know, <laughs> they weren't very good. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I had like the, um, the Voyager episode, Secret Origin, uh, where they the dinosaurs, the dinosaur episode. I had like come up with a version of that as a kid, and I was kind of actually happy 
when the the dinosaurs as aliens thing happened on Voyager, I was happy but also disappointed as a child because I was like, I had that idea. Uh, <laughs> I have that feeling yeah, all I mean, the time about things. I'm always just like, man, that's my idea. That's yeah, fine. that was I the, want well, doing it, but it's cool that someone did it. But yeah, I mean, I think that, but that's funny because as you grow up, you know, you and you study science fiction, you realize that it's actually never about the ideas because they can do the same ideas over and over again in amazing ways. And that it, it should always be like, oh, I was in good company rather than <laughs> somebody stole my stole my idea. But yeah, that's something that I, I think about a lot um, with science fiction, new science fiction. You watch, you see an old trope done in a totally compelling and new way. And it's like, it's 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 okay to do it over and over. So yeah, I guess that that would be the answer to the origin story question though. I, and I was, so I was born in Arizona and I moved to New York City uh, in my uh, early 20s when I was 23. And that was back in 2005, as we were saying before. And so that was then sort of like the trying to become a real writer. Well, that's cool that you kind of knew what you wanted to be at a fairly young age, and that was going to be in the world of writing. And I'd like to know what authors, or maybe if you even know what story, like what story or, or book that you read was it that puts you down this path to pursue creative writing, and in particular in the world of sci-fi? It's a good question. Um, I suppose it was probably Harlan Ellison, if mm. I'm being really honest, because... Um, I don't, do you remember the Star Trek customizable card game? There's a roundabout answer to your question. I have remember the way Decipher... too many decks that game. I don't want them. Right, I right. still have them. <laughs> yeah, the, the Decipher Inc. Uh, game. So I played that game, and I must have been around... It was 95, I think it came out. Sounds um, about right, yeah. And so, because I know the Star Wars one, which was also published by Decipher, came out in 96. So 94, 95, I was going to gaming nights at a local bookstore uh bookstar which doesn't exist anymore they were a subsidiary of barnes and noble and i hung out with a bunch of guys who are a lot older than me at the gaming night right um and those guys were like a huge influence on me in terms of introducing me to science fiction and one of those guys ended up getting me a job at barnes and noble a few years later when i was 17 and kind of too young to work at there but like it was that was like a really formative experience and so i think that from those guys i i started to get a more of like the literary angles on sci-fi and I definitely got like probably like at 13 years old or something like that. I got an Ellison collection. I and it was whatever it was probably a best of. I might be conflating the years a bit here, to be honest with you. So I'm not really sure what year this would have been. But I definitely remember reading like Repent Harlequin to the TikTok Man and Jeff D is five, which is the Harlan Ellison story where like a kid remains five, um, sort of in an alternate universe from like the narrator. Um and um those having a big influence on me and being aware of course that ellison had written for star trek the original series and like kind of putting those things together um so the El and you know when you're a young person really interested in writing short stories are really fascinating because they're like oh i could do that <laughs> you know you think very arrogantly i could do that um and now i think actually short stories are some of the hardest um things to pull off uh short fiction is very i I think about friends of mine who are really good short fiction writers, like uh, Karen Russell, who's a great friend of mine, uh, who's a big uh, science fiction fan. Um, you know, and how good she is at writing short stories or, you know, um, you know, some of the masters uh, like Bradbury, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I saw it probably was Ellison, um, you know, and then I later, you know, got to interview him a few times, a little bit of which is in, in the Star Trek book. Yeah, yeah, and you know, shout out to Ellison because his name comes up a lot of times on this show. So uh, we'll, we'll make it rain jelly beans in honor of Ellison today. <laughs> what was your Ellison story? Which one did you read first? Oh, uh, I don't think it was the Repent. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Shoot, I, I think my introduction to him did come, in fact, through Star Trek. 
So my introduction really my of, of him definitely came from Star Trek, right? Like yeah. when I was like eight or nine. I just mean that in terms of connecting it to like somebody who wrote prose was probably my my like tweens, you know, like thirteen or something like. But no, of course I I I was I, I think I only even read it because I was aware of the start. And also there's a Babylon Five, right? Like I was a big Babylon Five fan in the '90s as a kid, and that was like a new show that was on commensurate with DS9. Um, and I was a big Babylon Five fan, and I was aware that Ellison was involved in that. So I think that's when I got into his prose, you know, as a, as a teen. It's a great person to get involved into, and I also think it's really cool, and it tells me a lot about your character, the fact that you met up with these, I'll call them the elder geeks, if you will, who, mm-hmm. they kind of, like, put you on the path of where to go, and they weren't gatekeeping you, because that's, like, such a big thing in the nerdum community is gatekeeping, and uh, to me, it feels like what just happened right there is they opened the doors for you, and that's really cool, and that's kind of, you know, when I read your book, too, it's like you're passing on that knowledge, so that's uh, that's kind of a cool connection to make there. Yeah, I have an essay in my first book, which was came out in 2015, um, called Luke Skywalker Can't Read. Um, which is a sort of humorous essay collection about science fiction. Um, and there's an essay in there that in which I kind of disguise one of my, one of those elder geeks. And I kind of talk about working with him in the bookstore and sort of some of the way that, that, that was kind of like the, the record store in high fidelity and kind of not, <laughs> you know, uh, but for science fiction. Cause I feel like that everybody that I worked at when I worked at bookstores as a, young person um i felt like that that was a good way to get a lot of like science fiction friends who as you say were like not not gatekeeping i mean there was always one guy that was kind of like worst episode ever you know there was always one guy that embodied the the simpsons comic book guy but there was always a sweetness you know and going to the gaming nights with those guys as a as a younger person um and then sort of having them be like oh you've never seen blade runner you know when you're like 13, 14 um, is pretty great. And they're like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, uh, upwards, you know, they're, they're older than you. Um, yeah, it was really, I mean, I don't know who I'd be without those guys, to be honest with you. Now, how did you discover that you could combine all your geeky passions and actually make it into a career? A complete accident. You know what I mean? Like, um, as you know, because you live in New York, like uh, New York is a strange place and you can, you can find opportunities in New York. Uh, that perhaps you can only find in a few other cities in the world. Yeah. Um, you don't know, you know, so my, the way that I began writing professionally about science fiction, of course, could have been done remotely, I imagine. Um, but it came through connections that I made in New York. I, I had started to, um, uh, become aware of different like readings and stuff like that, that happened in New York city. Um, and I became aware of the literary journals and I started writing, um, nonfiction for Clark's world magazine, which is a big, uh, Neil Clark edits. It's a big, uh, well-respected Hugo award-winning, uh, literary science fiction magazine that was primarily digital. Um, and I realized that their, (laughs) their nonfiction rates were the same as their fiction rates. Right. And so I pitched a few, uh, nonfiction articles and I really had the sense that I wanted to be like a literary fiction writer. You know, and so, but I was really interested in a lot of what was happening in literary fiction then, which is true now, um, you know, in the early aughts and the kind of 2010s of a lot of uh, crossover, right? And so I was friends with a lot of authors. Um, and so I was writing about that a lot. I was really interested in that. I was like, oh, Victor Lavelle is writing horror, but it's being marketed as literary fiction. And he's obsessed with Harlan Ellison too. Um, so I wrote an essay, a really deeply reported essay about that phenomenon for Clark's World. 
And I enjoyed writing nonfiction science fiction so much that I immediately pitched them another essay that was about Sherlock Holmes, uh, which I was like, nobody has done like a proper essay about the connections between Holmes and science fiction, which I'm obsessed with. Sherlock Holmes is something I'm obsessed with um, and became obsessed with sort of like in my mid 20s, you know, around that. I think ah, I was been before that. It, yeah, that's about right. Early 20s or so. I was obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. Um, so, yeah. And that's when I um, started a correspondence with Nicholas Meyer. Um, so like I was writing this essay on spec, like Clark's was like, sure, we'll give you another, you know, a couple hundred bucks for another nonfiction piece. We liked the other one you did. That sounds fine. Not a career, right? You're, you know, you were doing freelance essays. It's not, you're not making um, a career. You know, I was still waiting tables or working at a bookstore in Brooklyn or something like that. Um, yeah, I was definitely working. Um, it was before I had my first writing job. So, um, yeah, I, uh, read a book called The Thieves of Manhattan. It's a great metafictional novel by a guy named Adam Langer. Still one of my favorite books. It's really, really funny. Um, and uh, Nicholas Meyer had blurbed the book and said that it was a great book. So I kind of like had a connection to this Adam Langer guy because I think it, I knew his agent or something like that. So I said, hey, I saw that Nicholas Meyer blurbed your book. I'm writing this essay about Sherlock Holmes. Um, you know, as we know, Sherlock, uh, Nicholas Meyer now, maybe the listeners don't know. I don't know. You've probably talked about this before, uh, that Nicholas Myers, the director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is obsessed with uh, Sherlock Holmes, wrote his his first novel was A 7% Solution, which was the Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Um, so I just cold e Adam Langer, this novelist, gave me Nicholas Myers' email address. And I just cold emailed Nicholas Meyer. This was in 2010. Um, and just said, uh, you know, I'm writing this essay about Sherlock Holmes. Would you do an email interview about your books and how you, you know, that the, the Spock stuff with Holmes and in Undiscovered Country. And he was so gracious. And like, we had this long email correspondence and that correspondence continues to this day. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that was one of my first hints that I could like kind of not really become a science fiction journalist because I didn't really think of it that way, but like an essayist. Right. Um, and then not long after that, I was just at a book launch party at a, a job I had at a bookstore I worked at in Brooklyn called Powerhouse. And I met someone who worked for Tor.com, T-O-R, which is a science fiction publishing blog. Uh, Tor Books, of course, is legendary. Um, you know, they published, uh, you know, amazing books. The Wheel of Time is probably their most famous series. Uh, you know, they uh, have John Scalzi now, you know, um, huge, huge, huge publishing house. I got I got a connection there to pitch freelance articles for them. And this was right after I'd done these Clark's World pieces kind of back to back and that were just freelance. And um, they said, yeah, yeah, you can write some some lists or whatever, best lizard people in science fiction or something. You know what I mean? And so I just started pitching for them. And then I got hired as a, as a staff writer in 2011. Uh, I was, like I was reviewing Doctor Who, I think, at that time. Because Doctor Who was really big, if yeah, you remember, that was, that was like in twenty. Well, right, and so I, I like got myself into like the press screening for like Matt Smith's first Doctor Who. Like this was before he was Matt Smith, right? Like you know, Matt Smith's like the man now, like House of Dragons. Um, but yeah, this was like right when I got like to see a screening of like the Eleventh Hour with like him and um, you know Stephen Moffat and stuff in the East Village in Manhattan um, before it came out. And I was like, oh, I, I was I was writing for a sex and culture blog called Nerve around the same time. And I was I was going to pitch them a Doctor Who story. But then I started uh, reviewing Doctor Who for tour. And then I got a staff job. And then from there, I had that staff job and I, I worked there for three years. And that was like a, I did. A, I learned how to become like a science fiction essayist that had to work every week. 
had to produce every day, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, a lot of people have that job. A lot of people know what that's like. Um, and I'm friends with a lot of those people. And I did that. And then that kind of is the foundation. So that's a long answer, um, I suppose. You can edit this later, I suppose. Um, but, I could, uh, but I probably won't. Cause I, yeah. I think it's all, you know, it's all part of the journey. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think that it's like, it, 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 you know, people, how did you become a writer? And it's just kind of like, well, I never intended the other thing that I'll say is that, like, I was doing parallel to all this. I was doing storytelling on stage in, in New York City. Okay, um, so you're performing, too. So I was performing. And that um, is really important for my development as a writer because it. Um, I had a background in speech and debate and theater in high school. And when I learned about the moth story slams in 05, I was like, I can do this. Um, but that was nonfiction, right? Taking something from your real life, putting it into... Uh, a story on stage. And then I was able to use some of those stories and publish them as personal essays later on. And that was helpful and very, very, it's a huge, I had somebody ask me like, why is there so much like memoir, personal essay style in your Star Trek book? And I'm like, well, that's where I come from. Like I was obsessed with David Sedaris and Sarah Vowell. Um, those were like, I thought those were like, they were like the greatest, they were my heroes. Chuck Klosterman's a huge influence on me. Um, so all the kind of like writers that were just like doing nonfiction, but really putting their own life into it. This American lifestyle, I suppose, that was really big at the end of the 90s and early aughts. It makes me sound old, but like, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, like, Ryan, me and you aren't that different in age, but you're making me feel like I'm ancient over here. Well, because sometimes I'll say things like, I'll be like, I'll, I remember working when I was um, an editor at Inverse. I remember being in the Soho office and saying that I used to perform with Andy Borowitz, who's like a comedian that most people associate with like shouts and murmurs now, but like Andy Borowitz in like 2005 was like this kind of like hip guy who like was the guy who co-created the fresh Prince and was doing like funny monologues on stage. And like, I was nobody, <laughs> you know? And he was like, that guy told a funny story about star Trek. Let's, you know, let's have him on another storytelling show. Um, you know, no podcast didn't exist or anything like that. So I, that was a big, like humorous live nonfiction was a big, big part of it. Um, so yeah, I, I think that some of that still remains in my style to this day, uh, to the point where sometimes I actually have to tamp it down a bit. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of the other places that you're writing at these days. And that's who mentioned at the, at the start of the show here, which is fatherly and you're their entertainment editor, in fact, which is a really cool thing to be. Uh, and I'd like to hear, you know, cause I know you have, uh, I believe a five-year-old daughter, right? I do. Yeah. yeah so how has sci-fi and of course emphasis here on Star Trek, uh, been a part of raising your family and raising your daughter? Yeah. So, I mean, like I can't. First of all, we got a, a box um, from Paramount today that was Lower Decks Season 3 box. I'm so jealous, by the way. Uh, I'm like tired of seeing that on Twitter because I don't ever get anything from them. <laughs> and I'm so jealous. I'll everybody. Matthew, I'll send you some of this stuff, but I, I will give you the caveat that it'll be whatever my daughter didn't take. Um, <laughs> she better enjoy she, those cookies and the hot sauce. She was just like, she was, well, she got, she hasn't watched Lower Decks, but she has like a knowledge of, of it. Cause I have like a Boimler shirt with like a double Boimler on it. And so she, th and she knows who Mariner is. And, and there's a poster of Mariner. She's like, I'm putting this in my room. So that gives you an idea of like where she's at. She like knows that there are other uh, ships other than the enterprise. And she'll be like, the enterprise has many brothers and sisters, has many siblings. That's um, a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, it's a big part. My daughter is obsessed with tribbles. Um, I have really rediscovered my love for all the triple episodes in a way that I don't think I would have. Um, yeah, it happened kind of organically. You know, your kids are interested in what you're doing, but you know, I, I think yeah, I started giving her my toys, my old nineties toys, like Riker and Troy, um, Jordy. Um, 
so she just started what she was playing with Star Trek stuff since from, you know, two years old or something like that. So it was kind of baked in. And now we watch the animated series, the 73 show together huh. um, very often, actually, like once a week. Um, and she has she hasn't seen all of it, but she, you know, little kids, they like to rewatch the ones they love. Um, so, but yeah, she has funny favorites, though, like episodes that you never think about, uh, like the survivor. Uh, which is the shape-shifting creature with the tentacles. My daughter loves it for some reason. Uh, she's obsessed with it. She's like, that's not Carter Winston. That's the shapeshifter. Um, she described the premise to my wife. My wife's like, what's that episode about? And my daughter goes, the the shapeshifter was pretty much everybody. That's her like description. Of, she's like, it can play dress up by itself. Um, but yeah. Uh, so I don't know. That's a rambly answer, but I mean, it's just I can't imagine my daughter not being sort of like she's aware of Star Wars as well. We have some lightsabers, um, but that's a trickier thing to show to a little kid because it's a little scarier. Yeah. Um, there's like enough Trek that is just kind of we watch uh, some of the uh, we watch the short Treks episode Ephraim and Dot. Uh, mm-hmm. She loves that because it's got that big kind of Looney Tunes chase in it. Um, seeing the Enterprise destroyed at the end is a little rough for a kid, though. Uh, I have to explain that Scotty is there on the planet and it's going to be okay later. Which, you know, a little <laughs> bit of a, a little bit of a fib, but kind of true. Well, you're raising your kids, right? You're making sure that uh, she knows what good sci-fi is. Cause that's a hard thing to do too. She loves Scotty. I will say Scotty is like a character that I didn't write about much in my book. And I feel bad about that. Cause my daughter now loves Scotty so much. And <laughs> I feel like Scotty was never one of my favorite characters as a kid or as an adult. I don't know why I have nothing against Scotty. Obviously you can't have Star Trek without Scotty. But now I'm like, Scott, like my daughter thinks Scotty is hilarious. Like she'll do the scene in Trouble with Tribbles where it's like, Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that? Like she loves that. And she thinks that that Klingon's name is Laddie, that that's his literal name. The House of Laddie. Which I tweeted out and uh, John Van Sitters, uh, one of the uh, 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 marketing guys for CBS was like, we can make this canon. Um <laughs> <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. 
or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together, how they got that great sound quality, what gear they use, how much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. All right, well, Ryan, let's beam into our official Star Trek discussion here. We've been kind of sprinkling along our conversation so far, but let's talk about phasers on stun right now. So how did this idea come together and more so... Why this book, when there's already so many Star Trek books out there that covered the history of the franchise? What was your idea to make it stand out and be different? Uh, Yeah, I've said this before, but I'll say it again because it bears repeating, is that I read this wonderful book. um, Well, I'll answer this question differently than I have answered it, actually. I hate it when interview as a journalist, when interview subjects go to their default answer, it's annoying. So I will answer this slightly differently. The short answer was that I was actually not sure what to do after my first book. And my first book was an essay collection that was kind of all over the place. Um, and I think that about half of it is really good now. And it sold okay. And I think it was a little misunderstood. But I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I re- worked on a science fiction novel for a little while. And it was not great. It was just not a good book. Um, and my agent was like, this is bad. And I was like, you're right. Um, and I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and and I, I had gotten married after my first book came out. And I had a kid. And I l- left New York. Uh, because I got a job that could let me work remote and, you know, save a little bit more money because living in New York, as you know, is expensive. Um, if you can keep writing somewhere else, sometimes it's a little easier. Um, anyway, I decided that I wanted to return to nonfiction because I'm good at it. You know, I'm better at it. I think that I am fiction, which is funny because now I am working on a novel after the next book, which is also nonfiction. Um, but, um, I had read this book called Dreaming the Beatles by Rob Sheffield, who's one of my favorite nonfiction writers, who writes for Rolling Stone. Um, and I love all Rob's books. Um, talking to girls about Duran Duran was like the inspiration for Luke Skywalker Can't Read. Um, but I was like, why does the world need another book about the Beatles? 
Well, the answer is that Rob Sheffield's Dreaming the Beatles is hilarious and awesome and had amazing analysis and is the kind of book you would hand to somebody who doesn't know anything about the Beatles. And they'd be like, this is amazing. And I thought that's never been done for Star Trek. That has never been done for Star Trek. Star Trek is usually like the kind of book that it's like really in the weeds, like right away. And that the um, there's just an assumption that the reader knows everything about Star Trek already. And so it's always about like this game of marbles where like, oh, this this book got way more facts than this book. And the, this journalist like got this scoop that nobody else got. And, it's, and, and at the end of the day, it's always kind of like, well, we kind of know the basic story. So I was just like, I love Rob Sheffield. I love Chuck Klosterman. Those are like some of my idols. And I'm always like, nobody does that for science fiction, really, um, where you just like, go really subjective on it and um yeah phaser sunstun is not an objective book as you know it is a subjective book um and it's written just in like, your voice now that i'm talking to you i can tell you like, this is your voice in that book. yeah 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 so i i really wanted i but i wanted it to be like I, I don't i want my wife who's just kind of a casual fan to be interested in it and i want people that don't know anything about star trek to be like holy shit star trek huh yeah wow it's really important in a way that like People say it all the time, but sometimes there's like the why is left out and the, and the obvious whys are there. You know, the the political stuff and the representation, those things are there. But I'm like, yeah, but did you realize that there was never a science fiction show for adults with continuing characters ever? And it's like, well, they're like, what about Doctor Who? It's like, that's a kid's show. It's like, what about Lost in Space? And it's like, that's a kid's show. Yeah. It's like, what about Twilight Zone? It's like not continuing characters. You know what I mean? And then you're like, wait a minute. And then you start doing the research and you start figuring out like who you can talk to. And you're like, wow, this is really amazing. So yeah. And my agent and uh, was like, uh, he was like, well, you have to convince me. Uh, Cause again, I'm a casual hand. He's a star Wars guy. And he's like, you know, and then my editor at penguin at plume Dutton was like, she's like, I've seen one episode of deep space nine. So this has to work for me. So that was, that was the mission. And actually I, and, and yeah, there's a lot of star Trek books that are probably better books for like going in the, um, on a golden record, you know, or like if you're like, there's one Star Trek book you need, you'd be like, what's the, I'd be like, well, the 50 year mission, you know, by Mark uh, Altman and Ed Gross, who I love those guys. I'm friends with those guys. Those guys are mentors to me. I fucking love them. Uh, you know, the Mark Cushman, these are the Voyages books. You know, I interviewed Cushman for a reason for my book. You know, I, I never would pretend to try to do what those guys did. But, you know, those are oral histories and they don't have a lot of fun, you know, and they're not they're not personal and so i just was like well i'll try it see if people like it uh, and so that was that was kind of the and i really wanted to do something that would come out the same year as the uh, wrath of khan um anniversary yeah because i feel like the wrath of i think that like this idea that star trek is just so again star trek history books kind of take this for granted that it's like really all the iterations are so different hmm. You know what I mean? And then you're like, you've got like a Deep Space Nine background behind you. And it's just like Deep Space Nine. Like I make a joke in the book about this. Like it has its like own fandom inside of Star Trek. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's like, how does that work? Like, you know, like a James Bond spinoff in which James Bond only appears in the first episode and it doesn't take place in England and none of the characters reoccur except for sometimes. And that has its own fandom inside of James Bond fandom doesn't exist. You know, Star Trek, there's nothing like Star Trek um, in that way. Uh, Maybe comics, but not not for visual media. You know what I mean? Like comics has that, right? Like comic Marvel and DC have that, but not not TV and movies. Like it's just amazing. You know, so I I, the awe of Trek, like what the fuck? Like, how does it even exist? I just wanted I just am so in awe of it at all times. And I I, I wanted to communicate that. You know, it's funny because in my notes here. 
one of my next things I was going to actually talk to you about was the accessibility of the book. That was, and you just, you basically just did the whole thing for me. So thank you for doing that. Uh, but yeah, it's a little, it's one of the things that I noticed as I was reading the book is like, yeah, anybody can pick this up and enjoy it and also understand why me and why you are so fanatical about it. And also just get a cool understanding. Like, you know, now these folk can go to parties and talk about Star Trek as if they know what they're talking about, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's really cool because it's great for the hardcores and it's also super accessible and what a great entry point for someone who's maybe just new to the fandom or never had an interest in it so uh you know hats off to you for doing that and for making that decision because again you could have gone like and done a super deep dive like mark cushman or the other guys you mentioned um but you know i, I think keeping it this way has made it just so wide open and uh, just great access to it yeah well when i was an i was an editor at inverse and i still write for them i remember having writers that worked for me and this is like when star trek beyond's coming out right and that their whole great writers, great journalists, great critics, and their whole background on Star Trek was the JJ films. Hmm. I was like, oh, well, that actually kind of makes sense because that was like the first one was 09. And then that was a while ago. And then um, this year, um, when I interviewed Celia Rose Gooding, who plays Uhura on Strange New Worlds, she blew my mind by being like, well, my first Uhura was uh, Zoe Zaldana. And I was like, well, right, because she's like, Celia Rose Gooding's like in her twenties. Two thousand nine was a while ago, so she was like a like a like a kid going to see the JJ movie, you know. And so I'm like, right? There's always people entering this that are like, don't they don't know about the cage, <laughs> you know? They don't know about the backlash that the next generation received because, you know, it, now we're like almost two decades uh, in from um, you know, the JJ movies, and that's kind of mind blowing. So, Ryan, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot now for real here. Uh, this is going to probably be the hardest question I ask you the whole interview. So what is your favorite Trek series? And I was going to ask, what's your favorite number one of all time? I know you're not going to be able to answer that. So I'm going to let you have three. What's your, your top three Star Trek episodes? Um, I think my favorite series is The Next Generation. You know, and I think that not because I think it's the best <laughs> necessarily, uh, but because it was the series I grew up with. Yeah. Um, I wrote. I wrote about it in my journal. I mean, you know, like I reviewed the finale in my diary um, in 94, you know, so I like, I remember it in this way that uh, was really informative and important. It's the first conventions I went to to see Patrick Stewart, you know, so that's big. Uh, so I'd say the next generation for purely nostalgic reasons. Um, and then in terms of episodes, you know, um, I probably am giving different answers all the time, but Again, from the next generation, I I want to say Inner Light because I'm friends with Morgan Gundell and he's like a really dear friend of mine. So I'll say like shout out to Morgan Gundell, Inner Light, uh, but and also Starship Mine, which is an awesome episode, <laughs> which I love uh, so much. Um, but um, I really love um, Tapestry um, a lot, uh, where Picard you know goes back and uh, you know has his It's a Wonderful Life moment there's something about that episode that really connected to me as a young person and again a great example of like a really overused sci-fi trope that like was presented in a new way um and the alternate universe that he like goes to where he's basically a lower decker i make a joke about that in the book like yeah. picard's version of hell is like what mariner and boimler do every day <laughs> you know um but like which is also kind of an interesting way of thinking about it now as an adult um but uh, I love that episode. I love the idea of thinking of Picard as this other person. And then, you know, from the original series, um, you know, I, 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 it's tough to pick an original series episode. Um, today, I'm going to say the Corbomite maneuver simply because it's so underrated and it's pretty much the first real episode in terms of filming order. 
Like it's the first one that they filmed after where no man has gone before. And that has the proper cast. Like it was aired much later, but you could, when you watch it, you can really tell um, like that. It's the real start where like Kirk's like, not got no shirt on and walking through the halls and uh, you know, bones is um, making good jokes. Got a great twist at the end. Um, and then um, I'm going to just go bananas and say the lower deck season one uh finale um uh no small parts i think that episode is really brilliant and works on so many levels and talks about sort of like status and like where you belong but also is this like amazing huge episode that has like explosions and sacrifice and people coming together and uh uh Riker cameo and um so I'll just say that th- these are probably not really my favorite episodes but like that's what I'll answer today because I haven't said how much I love that episode in a while and I really do I mean I'm surprised to actually see that on your list but I totally understand why because uh, you know I think Lower Decks is one of the best new incarnations of Trek we've gotten right now and uh you know I mean I don't know if I'd put that in my top 10 but it's you know now that you're making me think about it I'm kind of reconsidering because it is such a good episode there's so much good elements to it there's some episodes this season, too, I have to say. I've seen ahead a little bit on Lower Deck Season 3. That there are some episodes this season that are I'm like, wow, that's really... Oh, yeah. It's very good. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, um, and all I'll say is that, you know, um, I've seen the Deep Space Nine episode, and you will not be disappointed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you will not be disappointed by the Deep Space Nine episode. Let me throw you a hot take right now, because, you know, this comes up a lot in my show. Uh, I want to talk about Move Along Home real briefly, but not necessarily Move Along Home, but, you know... I don't think it's a bad episode. I actually like that episode, but it is still heralded to this day as one of the worst episodes of Star Trek and one of the worst of DS9. I disagree. So I'd like to get your take on Move Along Home and more importantly, your opinion, Ryan, as the Star Trek expert today. What is the worst episode of Star Trek? Well, I definitely don't think it's Move Along Home. It's definitely not. I don't even think that Move Along Home would be like in the top 20 worst episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Because it has a premise that's kind of like something they would have done on TOS. And it's better than like most season three TOS episodes. So like that that alone makes it not the worst the worst one. I mean, the worst episode of Star Trek is probably Code of Honor. I think it's gotta be Code of Honor. It's racist, it's bad. Uh even if it had been cast differently and it and there hadn't been the racial overtones, it still would be bad. It's pointless. It's really close to the beginning of Next Generation, which is super embarrassing. Uh, so I would say that's gotta be the worst episode of Star Trek. I mean, Threshold's pretty bad. I, I mean, like, I, I don't even think that, like, people, like, want to ironically love Threshold, where, you know, I, it just sucks. Like, it's just, like, even Brandon Braga is like, yeah, whatever, this is garbage. Yeah, I mean, there's a few, um, it's easy to dunk on Enterprise, so I won't, because I like defending Enterprise. But, um... Yeah, I would say that th- those would be some contenders. I mean, there's a lot of bad Next Generation episodes. You know, like, there's, you know, um, the one with Picard's fake son. You know, that's a terrible episode, Bloodlines. And I, I interviewed that actor, in fact. That's Ken Olam, so shout out I to love, him. <laughs> I love him, though, because of Super Force. Remember that show? Yes, we talked love, about that, too. Love Super Force. I always... The year is 2020 and times are tough. That's one of those shows like Space Rangers where you like, can't find it. Like in the 90s, there was all those shows that were like on the same time as like Sequest. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, like can't find any of them other than Sequest and Babylon 5. Uh, time Tracks produced by Harv Bennett. Uh, that's another one. Uh, yeah. So I would say like, you know, the one uh, Up the Long Ladder. That's a terrible episode. That's a bad one. Yeah. yeah that's a really bad one. Um, yeah. I mean, like there's some 
there's some TOS episodes too that are like utterly terrible as well. You know what I mean? Like I don't think Spock's brain is I think Spock's brain has like kitsch value and like there's some good ideas in there. But yeah, I mean, I actually think that Plato's stepchildren is pretty terrible. Um, you know, I know that it's a super important episode because of like the interracial kiss, but as I say in the book, like, you know, like they're being forced to kiss. Like there are far more progressive moments for Uhura um and other folks that are not white on the original series that aren't Plato's stepchildren. So Plato's stepchildren is not like is not a great episode. You know what I mean? Like there's some great things in it. I wouldn't say it's one of the worst episodes. It's not. It's certainly not. It can't be, but um, there's some bad TOS episodes, um, you know, that are kind of like, you're like, oh, yeah, that exists. Uh, I feel like I'm always one of the outliers when I talk about the Lazarus effect and how much I dislike that episode. The Lazarus? You mean um, the alternative factor? Oh, alternative factor. Yeah, I think that's one. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, one. yeah. Well, yeah. Lazarus is in it, right? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, want, I just like merged two titles of episode, but you knew which one I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I well, yeah, like we're, that well, yeah, that's a bad episode. Yeah, that's. Uh, it does have a funny last line where he goes, what of Lazarus and what of Lazarus? <laughs> like, that's funny. But yeah, no, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think Next next Generation probably is like the least consistent of the shows, weirdly. Yeah. You like look at DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise and you just like look for like median episodes. They're actually like better they're more consistent yeah but i think that like voyager and enterprise have fewer classics than tng and ds9 you know like they have fewer like wow that episode is like there's not as many yesterday yesterday's enterprises and you know like the visitor and stuff in voyager and enterprise um they have a harder time with the big the big you know the inner lights and stuff you know now your book has a lot of interviews also with a lot of different folks from essentially every era of star trek so, and I know that you've, you know, through your work, have talked to a lot of other folks in Star Trek for your articles or other books. Uh, but, you know, for the instance of this one here, what was the most surprising thing you learned while writing Phasers and Stun? Um, the most surprising thing was definitely, like, the degree at to which Robin Curtis was sort of, like, kicked to the curb um, in after um, Star Trek IV um, and kind of after Star Trek III. Um, I've talked about that extensively and I talk about it extensively in the book. So I'll say that was the most surprising thing. Uh, hands down and most interesting. And like, I, I just love Robin so much and she contributed so much to that book. But I would also say the the most surprising thing was just how much I still undervalued the original series in terms of how much it brought science fiction to the mainstream. And if there's any like larger point in my book that I feel like hasn't been made well in other documentaries it's that it's the idea that yes the twilight zone had richard matheson writing and the outer limits had harlan ellison and you know these other big science fiction writers working but those were anthology shows and they were still kind of niche you know what i mean in terms of their breakthrough and they were in black and white they weren't even by the early 60s they weren't modern right star trek brought all the science fiction tropes to the mainstream it made science fiction mainstream in a way that no other phenomenon had before or since and lucas you know george lucas you know says you know like you know star trek softened that up made it possible uh for it to happen and you really can't imagine it because lost in space wasn't going to do it doctor who as much as i love doctor who um and i owe an aspect of my career to doctor who um you know, Doctor Who was never going to be a mainstream show at that time, at least not in America. The production values for Star Trek, the the quality of the writing, the quality of the acting, the seriousness with which they took it. You know, Norman Spinrad, who wrote The Doomsday Machine, who was this huge sci- science fiction novelist, 
you know, he was like, this is when Dylan went electric. This brought these tropes, that tiny, tiny literary community, tiny, and then made it huge. And the proof is just the numbers. You know what I mean? Like there's so many people, so many more people attended Star Trek conventions uh, in the 70s than they were attending like science fiction conventions or Comic-Con. Uh, so without that, I don't think you have Star Wars and I don't think you have any of the science fiction TV shows, even if they're like running opposite to Star Trek, right? Like even if it's an opposite, even if it's a response to Star Trek, that's the opposite. It's still because Star Trek exists, right? Like there's no, like you could fi find the science fiction show that's on TV now. That's the furthest from Star Trek. And none of the writers have ever seen Star Trek, whatever that show might be. Westworld, probably. Um, you know what I mean? I'm sure some of the Westworld writers have seen Star Trek. I love I love shitting on Westworld. I don't know why. It's my favorite thing to do. I actually kind of like this season of Westworld. Um, it's but no big like, deal. It's only like the most pretentious thing on TV. So I It's totally... only the most pretentious thing on TV, right? Yeah, it's very pretentious. It's like... like but I've like, sat through so many episodes of that and I still don't know what the hell I'm watching. Well, that's why I make that joke about Shore Leave in my book where I'm like, come on, like, Star Trek did Westworld in one episode. It's called yeah. Shore Leave. <laughs> you know, like, and it was a joke. Uh, but it, Westworld's like if the rabbit was still running around, you know, with its own and, you know, putting its rabbit mind into other robots. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, like, that's a good example. Like, that show can't exist without Star Trek, even if no one on the show knows anything about Star Trek. Jeffrey Wright knows about Star Trek. He's a Star Trek fan. He's cool. I've interviewed Jeffrey Wright before. He's all right. Um, but like, that's a good example. Like, I don't see how you get to a point where like a science fiction show like that. Well, Crichton knew about Star Trek and he created the original Westworld. Majel Barrett was in it, yeah. you know? <laughs> so like, you know, I just don't think you can have even like Black Mirror, you know, like the most, un I mean, they had a Star Trek parody in it, for Christ's sake, which I hate, by the way. I don't know why people think that's such a good episode. I love Black Mirror. I don't think that that Callister episode is good. I don't get that episode. I don't get why people think it's so good. There's Start so many better fights on the internet right now. <laughs> well, it's just not very smart. You know what I mean? It's it, it it's like, oh, look, this person used Star Trek and were they were mean about it. And it's like, yeah, but what are you saying? Like that Star Trek sucks or are you saying this person sucks? You know what I mean? There's a lot of other ways that that could have played out. It just was like, a, he's a bad person. So like any per, any way in, way in which he perverted something, uh, it could have been anything. I think that people like it because it, it it takes Star Trek down a peg, but which is fine, whatever. It's fine. Well, let, yeah. let's get away from Black Mirror for a yeah, second. Anyway. Uh, that's going to be, yeah, we can go on a lot of tangents. Like, I feel like yeah, today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> go ahead. It's all good. It's all good. And, you know, I want to talk about something that surprised me in your book because there was a lot of things I actually learned, you know, and I don't want people to get the wrong idea when I said this is a book that's accessible to new people or people that don't know about Star Trek, there's actually still, you know, a ton of really great new stuff in there that I never knew about. Uh, and, you know, on this show, especially, we talk a lot about actors and their auditions. And your book covers several people's auditions for Star Trek roles. And the ones I want to talk about right now are actually the parts of Spock and Ahura. And, like, I didn't know the transformation that the characters went through, or even really the entire original TOS cast. Like, the, the transformations and more or less the blank slates all these characters were, and, like, how Spock and Ahura were almost actually kind of like the same character, you know, they're interchangeable essentially. So, uh, you know, for folks who don't know this story, I love it. You can just kind of educate us real quick on that. Yeah. So when Nichelle Nichols goes into audition, like Roddenberry doesn't have a part written for her, you know, so she reads Spock's lines and she incorrectly assumes no fault of her own that Spock was a female character um, because they were giving the what's Spock like, what's she like, uh, you know, and um, they just wanted to see if they could create a character for Nichelle Nichols and then Nichelle Nichols proceeds to create a character basically from the ground up on her own you know with Roddenberry but you know that character just didn't exist on the page at all 
And with Spock, of course, I think that that's um, a little bit better known, but that, um, you know, Roddenberry had conceived of him as like having red skin at some point and looking a lot more like like the devil. Um, maybe he even would have had a tail um, and that he and that that whole idea is that he would have been in opposition to your prejudices. You know what I mean? That here's this guy who looks like the devil. Um, and, you know, some of that survives into the original series jokes about Spock being looking like Satan and Uhura sings a song about it. Uh, someone in around the Enterprise and Satan's guys, you know, but, you know, the that idea of the, the, the you know, you green blooded hobgoblin or whatever, you know, like that, that kind of goes away. Um, but, you know, in the animated series, they kind of bring it back by having the guy who looks like the devil who's kind of been persecuted yeah. um, for yeah. just looking that way. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that, yeah, with Uhura in particular, because that's the only character that really was created entirely by the actor. Michelle Nichols created Uhura entirely, um, whereas Nimoy created like all the good things about Spock, <laughs> you know, like Nimoy, like kind of made all the things that we care about with Spock, the, the right things, uh, you know, but none of those were fully formed. You know what I mean? Whereas Kirk kind of was like Kirk kind of is fully formed and Shatner is Kirk right away, you know? So like, there's like, you know, it's not like everything was a rough draft. Um, you know, it was, uh, some, some things were and some things weren't. And also, you know, on this topic of auditions, I really enjoyed the story. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead in time now from TOS now to Voyager. Uh, I really enjoyed reading about Kate Mulgrew's audition and how the very roundabout way she ultimately got that role. Yeah, so I that all that all comes from uh, her memoir "Born with Teeth," and also from you know all the various uh, old DVD commentaries and you know different interviews um, over the years. But a good portion of it comes from her memoir "Born with Teeth," and Kate Mulgrew is Kate Mulgrew is one of the of all the Star Trek actors who have written memoirs, and there are not as many as you might think. Like most of the next generation cast has not, for example, written a memoir. Will Wheaton, ha Will Wheaton has uh, a revised one as well uh, that just came out. That's actually really good. Um, we had him on the show talking all about it. So if yeah, folks are watching well, the show, well, haven't seen it yet. Go ahead and tune into it. I actually did watch your episode with Will because I I, I am uh, I interviewed him around the same time. Oh, um, I love I love him. He's great. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Kate Mulgrew is a real writer, and her memoirs are excellent. Um, and as somebody who used to teach memoir and nonfiction in New York, um, I, I would recommend her memoirs to anyone who's interested in, in writing creative nonfiction, even if you don't care about Star Trek, because Voyager is not a huge part of uh, her first memoir, Born With Teeth. Um, so that came from that, uh, just the idea that uh, she was kind of going through a divorce and like taped this audition on like a rainy day in New York and like didn't, didn't really feel into it and then just didn't get it. You know, they, they didn't get it and they get it, gave it to Genevieve Bourgeois uh instead and then that didn't work out and then the audition happened again in la and then she got it you know like a lot a lot so it's like i th i write this in the book but it's almost like the universe like corrected itself it's like that we were like it was like this bad timeline with the wrong janeway and then it corrected itself and we got the right janeway somehow and that's amazing to me i also just loved i, I also think people forget how young kate mulgrew was like she was in her 30s and we and we're meant to think that she's a lot older, Janeway, the character. Yeah. But it's like she's a young, a very young woman um, who's taking on this role of this kind of like maternal figure on Voyager. It speaks to a lot of the sexism of the industry that somebody in their mid 30s was like old, which is ridiculous, you know, because she's very, very young and she's probably younger. She's definitely younger than Patrick Stewart was when he started and perhaps younger than Avery Brooks, um, probably around the same age as Shatner. Um, 
in terms of when they became their captains of their respective shows. But yeah, I mean, just a fascinating, she's so good. She's just, I've interviewed Mulgrew a few times and I just, you know, she's really good in is that, uh, that man who fell to earth. She's fantastic in that. Um, but yeah, I, her, how did that happen? We got so lucky that it happened. You know, you kind of actually mentioned this next thing I'm going to ask you about, which is really serendipitous for me, but, uh, you know, we're going to start to get a little bit more possibly headed down the politics route right now. But, you know, these days we hear a certain subset of fans who really don't like new Trek as it is referred to. They don't really like the new modern Star Trek, but really it's kind of always been this way with Star Trek fans on a historical level. Uh, and, you know, I want to talk about now the backlash that originally came out against the next generation series. Yeah, I remember when I interviewed Frakes uh, for Discovery um, in 2018 when he directed the um, Big Mirror Universe episode, Despite Yourself. Um, it was my first big interview with Frakes. And, you know, he was saying, oh, I see what's happening to the Discovery cast is what happened to us. You know, that people were really um, against it. And, you know, uh, Shatner actually did that great documentary, uh, Chaos on the Bridge, one of Shatner's best documentaries, actually, which is a very tight one hour documentary about the two years of the next generation. He got some amazing interviews with people that are no longer alive. You know, I interviewed uh, Dorothy Fontana a little bit, um, but, you know, Shatner got a lot of time with her and stuff like that in that doc. But the bottom line is that, yeah, like the press and the fans for a long time had this bitterness about the next generation in a way that then happened again with Deep Space Nine and then happened again with Voyager and Enterprise. And, you know, I talked to Michael Chabone about this, who's the you know, co-creator of Picard and, of course, one of the greatest living novelists on the planet. Um, he was like, yeah, he's like every fan, even if they're like really liberal, has like this like weird conservative knee jerk, like, uh oh, it's a new Star Trek. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to like that. And I remember feeling like this about Lower Decks. You know, I was like, I don't know. I'm not that big of a Rick and Morty fan. I don't know if I'm going to like this. Now, of course, I'm like the biggest Lower Decks fan there is. Like, I I, I talked to Tani Newsom and Mike McMahon on the phone just two days ago. And I, I love you guys so much. You know, like, I, they're my they're my heroes, these people. So I, I don't know. I think that there is, there's the obvious toxic trolls who will just never be happy. But then I think that what I was trying to say in the book is that this impulse lives in the in the good fans, too. You know what I mean? And that there are people that are smart, politically progressive people who aren't racist lunatics um, who are still kind of like, oh, new Star Trek. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, and it's like, well, you like Star Trek, right? You you came around to the next generation, right? You know, and that's what's so funny is now the next generation is considered to be like retro, um, you know, and that's interesting that that's now arguably has more is more beloved in a way than the original series, probably because it was more popular, you know, like at the time it was, you know, 20 million viewers a week. Uh, you know, when it, uh, it was so popular, you know what I mean? The next generation was one of the most popular science fiction shows ever. Um, and still is. And then Voyager, you know, um, kind of not when it was on, but in Netflix, you know, Voyager is one of the most watched uh, science fiction shows ever when it was on Netflix for 10 years. Um, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I just think that people that hate the new Star Treks either just go away and get too old to care, or they become people that like the new Star Treks. <laughs> and then they are like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't like the next generation when it started, but I forgot that I was that person, you know? And so I think that's part of it, too. 
I kind of want to break this down a little bit further too, because you know, uh, my my question is essentially, you know, is, is why is this modern era of Star Trek having such a hard time connecting with viewers? Because you know, right now, you, you talk about this on your book too. It's always been a Star Trek thing. It's always been, you know, all these sleeping moves that the show does for the sake of representation, and you know, it's a big, big, huge thing for television and for entertainment and just the world to see that kind of thing. Um, but you know, then you hear all the complaints about the representation from that side of fans or whatever it is. Um, you know, and then I'll hear also the same group raving about the Orville, which, you know, the Orville's fun, but to me, you know, I think that's like low Trek. Uh, I don't really quite think no. it's, it's definitely not true, true Star Trek. It's more like a parody of Star Trek done by Family Guy. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to just not rant about the Orville because I don't like the Orville. Um, and, I appreciate what they're trying yeah. to do, but I don't want to watch it. So to answer your question, though, the Orville is actually an interesting case, though, right? Like, so if you accept the premise that the new Star Trek shows are having a hard time finding their audience, I don't know if I accept that premise because I see how many people read my articles about the new Star Trek shows and have been since Discovery started. Um, and I can also show you what that traffic looks like next to articles about the Orville. And it doesn't match up, you know, and I'm not saying that Internet traffic is like necessarily a good predictor of how many how people watch shows, because it's not because a lot of people are not are online and aren't Googling the shows that they watch, you know, and that's really true of Star Trek. There's a lot of people that love Star Trek who don't know anything about any controversies at all. And that's like most people, right? Like that's most people who like Star Trek are actually kind of blissfully unaware. Like they, 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 if they're listening to this podcast, we're like, how do we get you? How do we find you? How do we pull you away? But, um, let's just accept that that premise is true, even though I don't know if it is because like strange new worlds, like everybody seems to have watched. Um, but let's accept the premise that the new Star Trek shows are struggling to find an audience just for fun. The number one reason is simply platform bias. That's all it is. That is all it is, is that for some reason, something happened like after 2015, and if a show wasn't on Netflix or a streaming platform that everybody immediately understood, there was immediately a media bias against the show. And Discovery had this hugely when CBS All Access was coming out. So just imagine that Lucasfilm wasn't sold to Disney, okay? Imagine that Lucasfilm was sold to Universal, and the new Star Wars shows were coming out on the Sci-Fi Channel or Peacock. You'd have industry backlash. People would be upset that they had to like buy, like, what's this dumb platform? It's all about the platforms. That's all it is. Like, take Westworld. We were making fun of Westworld a little while ago. Why is, was Westworld well reviewed when it came out? It had really famous actors in it and it was on HBO. Take the famous actors out, put it on the sci fi channel. Tell me how it does. Nobody likes it. You know what I mean? Battlestar Galactica proved in the mid aughts that, that quality does win. But if Battlestar Galactica was on Peacock now, or Hulu now, it would never become a hit. And the best example of this is For All Mankind, probably the best science fiction show on TV other than the new Star Trek shows. Nobody watches For All Mankind because it's on Apple. If For All Mankind was on Disney+, Plus, it would be like huge, right? And every science fiction fan. So why do people like the Orville? Because it was on network TV and it was on and it's on Hulu and everybody has Hulu. And that's why. And that's the only reason why. And Paramount Plus now has fixed that a bit. Like Paramount Plus is better now than it ever has been. It has better stuff. And it's you're not just paying $7.99 a month for Discovery or whatever. Now there's all the other shows and, you know, all the other offerings they have. And as a parent, Paramount Plus, I think, is great. They have all the kids shows that you need, you know. But and I'm not like some show for Paramount Plus. I'm just saying, like, I get why people were mad in 2017 because they were just paying for Discovery. Like, I get it. But if you're a Star Trek fan, I don't know why that was a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because... I remember having to like illegally get Doctor Who just like a few years prior. And I would have paid any amount to have a streaming service that just gave me Doctor Who. 
you know, but then it's like a few years later, they're like, oh, I have to pay $6.99 to watch the new Star Trek. I hate it. And I think that's where I think that's where it started. I think it's just the, I think it's just the platform. And Discovery was on Netflix in the UK for the first couple of years, and it did great over there. So it's like that's the problem. It had Star Trek had the Viacom CBS thing just happened differently, or God forbid, journalists could have like not gotten mad about the 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 channel it was on. Because that's what it was. I was in newsrooms. I was working in Inverse. There was a bias against CBS All Access. People were like, we're not writing about it. It sucks. We hate it. And then you'd read articles on like Gizmodo, like CBS All Access sucks. And it's just like, why? You don't even know what it is yet. You know what I mean? And that's and I think that really hurt the shows. And I think it still does. Because when you read people that are unaware of the new shows, they'll be like, what's it on again? You'll be like, Paramount Plus. They're like, I don't have that. The streaming wars is definitely a big part of it, for sure. Uh, you know, one, one of the things I always see the complaints about is the politicalness of Star Trek. And I'm just like, are you guys paying attention? Like, do you not know what Star Trek is? Because, uh, you know, and, and I feel like this is a great point to your knowledge as well, because, you know, all sci-fi approach has been political. You can look at Star Trek and its progressivism, you'll get dune i know you're a big dune fan you know frank herbert's environmentalism message is really subtly hidden in there but it's in there uh you know harlan ellison had his views uh robert highland and his libertarian views of starship troopers um so you know i, I feel like these days politics is and everything and it's so much more apparent for whatever reason people seem to notice it now more what, what's your take on this with sci-fi and with star trek in particular and why this certain group of fans is not really happy about the politics that they're seeing i mean i i wrote there was the guy that i was on fox news who wrote about stacy abrams in the finale of discovery and his headline was really bad. It was like something about Star Trek being woke. But if you, re- if you read yeah. it, and I, I wrote a response to it in Inverse, and I was very fair to him. And I was like, this guy seems to be a real fan. He, his headline is not, he's a Republican, and I don't think, I don't like Republicans, but like, this guy seems to be a real fan. And his nitpick was that it was overtly partisan because Stacey Abrams is running for office. And it's like, okay, like I can bend over backwards and see your point. But the problem is, is that Kirk and Bones criticized Vietnam in, you know, a private little war. <laughs> you know, um, I know that that episode also had the Mugatu in it. So maybe it was a little funnier um, than, you know, the season finale of Star Trek Discovery uh, season four. But, um, you know, that was a partisan issue then. You know what I mean? For for Captain Kirk and Bones to criticize the Vietnam War. You know, Ronald Reagan visited the set of The Next Generation, um, and Patrick Stewart was not crazy about that and went on record saying it at the time. Um, you know, I think that it's okay for Star Trek to be partisan or political, because not just because it always has been. But, like, what's the point? And I remember talking to Michelle Paradise about this, who's the showrunner of Discovery. And Michelle Paradise is brilliant. You know, she's been the showrunner since midway through Disco Season 2. And it was like, well, why why wouldn't we want to have somebody like Stacey Abrams that represents our values on the show? And also, Stacey Abrams is a big Star Trek fan. And also, Stacey Abrams didn't want to know anything that happened in Discovery Season 4 because she didn't want to be spoiled. So the part was written in such a way that it was just like a cameo. And there have been people of other political parties that have had cameos on Star Trek before. So I don't know. Like, I think it's just a little bit. Let's just say that you and I were both hardcore Republicans. It's still not that offensive. You know what I mean? Like, if you're a hardcore Republican, it's not that bad. Now, I now you could make an argument like, well, what if it was the other way around? You know, what if it had been, you know, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? Palpatine, uh, Mitch McConnell. And they're like, well, Mitch McConnell is a terrible person. 
Stacey Abrams isn't a terrible person. You know what I mean? If you disagree with her, it's one thing. But like, I don't know. I just think that it's like, I think it's fine. And I liked it. And I like Stacey Abrams. But I also know that Stacey Abrams is a fan. And that is relevant. You know, because like, that's like, it. they did it because she's a fan. And the secondary thing was, well, and also we happen to ideologically align with her. And I happen to ideologically align with Stacey Abrams. And I think that's okay that that can be reflected in a show that I really like. I don't know what the problem is there. It's like, so if you're like a Republican Star Trek fan and you get something else out of it, I'm a little sensitive to this because I had a Republican father and he likes Star Trek. And I do think that conservatives can like Star Trek. That would be really weird to say. You're like, my argument is like, more conservatives should watch Star Trek and they should continue to be annoyed by these things because maybe if like a hundred conservatives watch the new Star Treks, and they get annoyed, one of them will change their mind. Because Star Trek does that. It changes people's minds. So let's let's let the Republicans keep getting mad about watching Star Trek because one of them will switch sides. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because you know, I always have that same kind of thing, you know, like how can a conservative not watch Star Trek the same way that a progressive person watches Star Trek? And it, uh, really, I mean, they can. I, I've had actually a really great comment on my YouTube channel recently uh, with my interview about Nidon Visitor. And somebody was talking about one of the episodes that we mentioned uh, in passing which uh, I'm trying to remember the DS nine season three sanctuary, which okay. is, you know, a lot of people don't like that episode because it's a very uncomfortable episode. And also the makeup is fairly not the most pleasant to look at, but uh, you know, it's also topic wise, pretty rough one in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I got the comment from this person who was pretty clearly, you know, I knew what side this person was on based on the comment. They're saying how it's like, uh, it's a great episode because it shows how the left is, uh, you know, okay with immigrants coming over, but when, when it becomes their problem, they don't want it anymore. And I'm like, that's an interesting conservative take on something that I didn't necessarily think about before. Well, so I think it, that, isn't that like, yeah. you know, it's a weird thing, right? I think that Star Trek has always been like critical of the left, but from the left's perspective. Yeah. Right. Like the left having conversations with itself, like Star Trek is saying we're already progressive, right? We're already here. We're already on this side. So how can we be better? How do we still continue to fail even though we have? So, I mean, sure, you can. You could have that take, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the episode was conservative, you know, yeah. right? Like that's sort of closed minded, right? Like that's like thinking like, no, 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 because betterment is about betterment. It's an interesting Period. way to jump through some hoops and then get the, do that mental math to make it that way. But yeah, but like it's, it's always, a math to do. I also think that Ron Moore, you know, who's responsible for a lot of the political writing, I think that Ron Moore also was frustrated by people saying the Starfleet wasn't the military. And I think that Ron Moore, you know, and obviously plenty of people in the military can be of all sorts of political persuasions, like just like anybody else. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that Ron Moore sort of was like, well, then here's a great opportunity to take this organization that purports to be progressive and liberal and yet is a military organization. So let's criticize that and unpack that. And then obviously when he gets to Galactica, he gets to do that in a completely different way. And like, you know, I think that Star Trek is always about turning things inside out. It's not just about an echo chamber. It's not just saying, hey, you th sometimes it is right. And that's for the viewers who might not agree. But for the viewers that already agree, it's like, well, we've got you. So now let's make you think a little harder. And I think that that's like what TNG tried to do sometimes. Right. Like, you know, Jerry Taylor, who wrote um, The Outcast, you know, didn't write it for gay people, which is a problem. That's a problem, right? Because then th those viewers weren't seen, right? The queer viewers of Star Trek weren't seen by that episode. But the straight people 
who were thought themselves very progressive were challenged. You know what I mean? And I think that that is kind of in the legacy of that episode. And, you know, I, and some of that is not just me saying that some of that is a lot of LGBTQ plus Trek scholars who have said, listen, this was not a great episode, but it's really important at the time in the nineties to have somebody discussing pronouns, right? Like nobody was doing that. So again, that's not for the conservative viewer. That's for the liberal viewer who's perhaps not as progressive as they think. You know, and I think that that's where if Star Trek is being critical of the quote unquote left, it should be because we're always about bettering ourselves. Right. Like that. We're not about just being like, oh, well, we got it all figured out. We watch Star Trek. You know, we got to keep trying harder. <laughs> yeah, If I may stand on my soapbox for a bit, which I normally don't do in this show, I usually let please do. I t- I've been talking too much. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, but, you know, I feel like since we're going down this rabbit hole here, I want to say a few things, too. And, you know, I think. One of the things I see a lot on the internet, especially when I hear criticisms of the modern era of Star Trek that we're in right now, is people will say that it doesn't have any hope anymore. There's no optimism in it. And, you know, I think start, modern Star Trek especially is very much still about hope, but it's a modern reflection of our world today and the way that we're looking at hope. So, you know, as opposed to, let's say, the issues of the 60s and what the issues were in the 60s, today in the 2020s, we have much more complicated issues. I mean, back then, we were talking about the metaphorical idea of equality, and even in the Berman era of Star Trek, you know, we kind of still had the same thing, that just big, grandiose term of equality. Um, but that's not really what we're doing today. Like, those moral plays we looked at back then, you know, they're still relevant, but they're not quite as nuanced as what we're, you know, what we're talking about today with modern Star Trek. And I think the difference is now we're taking actual responsibility to achieve equity, not just equality, but actually equity through this, which, you know, would be fairness, justice, balance of these issues. So, you know, I think complicated issues and equity are really the true focus of what Star Trek is and really what I think all modern sci-fi and most modern entertainment is about. It's really just, you know, what can we do as a society to get to that point and, you know, I don't want to repeat myself, but essentially I think it's the right choice of words to take responsibility for all the talk we've been saying for decades. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it's about, you know, representation in a way that doesn't need to become allegory. Right. Like, like, it's like, we don't need Colbert and Stamets to become an allegory. They can just be a couple. And that's something that Star Trek hadn't done before, you know, to show people that were happy that just aren't straight, you know? And I think that that is really important. And I, you know, I've interviewed Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp many times. and There's no nicer person and smarter actor uh, uh than wilson cruz and wilson cruz is aware of all he's like a huge star trek fan you know his favorite episode is um uh is there in truth no beauty you know what i mean like the, you know he has like deep cuts in terms of like yeah. things that he loves but i mean i think that that's part of it right like where it's like they're not saying well now we're gonna have an analogy about it's like no no no, it just exists and i think that was the problem with the star trek in the 90s is that because there was so much homophobia in mainstream media at the time that it was just like did they try hard enough maybe not ira steven bear says they didn't um you know i don't know but i do know that if you have the opportunity to just represent something in that kind of hopeful setting you should just do it you know, and I think that that's something, you know, Lower Decks does it on this season that you'll see in a really cool way. That's kind of surprising. You're like, oh, this I'm so thrilled, not surprising because of the uh, sexual orientation, but just surprising because of the characters themselves. Um, you know, uh, but uh, I think that, um, yeah, like, I don't know anybody who thinks that, like, the contemporary shows aren't good 
because of representation, like is clearly missed a note somewhere, you know, like has clearly gotten something confused. You know, it was like, remember when Avery Brooks was the first American actor to lead a Star Trek show and also the first black actor to lead a Star Trek show. And that was somehow the checked the same box, you know, like, and that how amazing and wonderful that was. And like, you know, and if you had a problem with that in 93, then I mean, like, come on, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, under, and I also don't understand like, you know, with Discovery, you know, Michelle Yeoh and Sonequa Martin-Green, it's just like, they're really great actors. Michelle Yeoh is one of the most famous actors on the planet. Why wouldn't she want her in Star Trek? You know, the only problem I have with Discovery Season 1 is she's not in it enough. <laughs> you know? It's, you know, that's my only complaint, really, is I'm like, I could have done, like, way more episodes with Prime Giorgio. Uh, you know, I just want yeah. them to find the excuse to bring in Cynthia Rothrock with Michelle Yeoh. Like, that's what we need Section 31 to be, just go. them together. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I... Well, well. Section thirty one show. I I I was I don't know what's gonna. I will hope that still happens. It probably won't, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like no, but man, we can dream. We can dream. But uh, you know, just to kind of get us away from the politics stuff. You know, even though Star Trek is very much political, let's let's get into some happier stuff too. Again, uh, and you know, as we mentioned, you talk to a lot of folks throughout your time, not just for doing this book, but also throughout your entire career. A lot of folks who are very notable people in Star Trek. So uh, I'd love to hear if you have any stories about you being starstruck and how the heck you survived that experience with someone. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, when you do this, you know, you've interviewed a ton of people, you know. Um, I guess I'll ask, I'll, I'll reverse it. Were you starstruck with Will Wheaton? Yeah, definitely was. A I mean, bit. I think uh, Frakes was the one that had me uh, shaken the most and being super nervous. Yeah, yeah, definitely those two. Uh, Nana was also a little bit tough for me because Nana is like, you know, that's Nana visitor. And, uh, you know, and as far as my Trek fandom goes, she's equally as important, if not more so, than Commander Riker was to me uh, and is. So, yeah, those, uh, I, I know to me, yeah. I'm yeah. already like fumbling my words out because I'm thinking about it. I'm getting nervous. Yeah, I think that head. some of it is like, I think that the phone helps sometimes when it's not Zoom. Yes. Um, the phone helps to kind of mitigate that a Very bit. Very much agree. Um, but I would say that like, you know, I had a moment with Patrick Stewart this year that didn't make it into the book because the book was already kind of getting edited and there was like things being cut out and added and Picard season two was coming out. Yeah, And I was doing the junket for Picard season two and I didn't have much time with folks. You know, I was one of many journalists that did that. And um, I talked to, I knew I wasn't going to get a whole lot for my steward interview. Uh, so I was just kind of like, I'm just going to kind of like talk because this, I may never get a chance to interview Patrick Stewart again. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a tougher one. To, I didn't even try for the book because I was just like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and also like uh, Stuart's one of those people who are like, what's he going to say? He hasn't already said, you know, I'm going to just sound like an idiot. So I just ended up talking to him about uh, Dickens and how um, important he was to me as a kid, because I got into tale or um, Christmas Carol because of his one man Christmas. I had the cassettes as a kid and I will, I don't think I would have gotten into Dickens if it weren't for Patrick Stewart. And I told him that and he's just like, Ryan, very meaningful to me and thank you for sharing that and he was just like i, I i'm i'm really touched and he and you could tell that he was being genuine and so we just kind of talked about that and then we talked about dune a little bit <laughs> because it was like something different to talk about you know what i mean and that's how i got through it right because that's how i got through being starstruck because i saw patrick stewart this is in my book uh, on stage and as a kid at a convention you know what i mean and like i, I mean i was a kid I saw Patrick Stewart on stage at a convention. I was a little kid. You know, I was 10. Um, you know, like, that's Patrick Stewart, you know. So I think that um, that was a big one. That was, you know, this year and not in the book. Um, 
but yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> the funny story, I guess, is that I interviewed Brent Spiner and LeVar Burton the same day. And it was That's also the, it, well, and I was also the day that I got my COVID booster. <laughs> um, so I, not, not, not my COVID booster. Remember when the vaccine first came out, you had to get the two shots, right? Yeah. So it was my second COVID shot. And that was the one that really hit me. So in the morning, I interviewed LeVar and um, that was great on Zoom. And then I got my COVID shot and I came home and I interviewed Brent which is my first time interviewing Brent. And I've subsequently interviewed him a couple times since then. Um, I really love Brent. He's so great. He made me feel very comfortable, but I was very nervous because it's LeVar and Brent. And then on top of that, I had the side effects from the COVID shot. And so after I got off the phone with Brent Spiner, I just got onto my couch and collapsed. And my do- <laughs> There's a photo of my daughter just climbing on top of me, sleeping on me, like while I'm just like, I was so, it was one of the biggest days of my life. I was like, I caught my COVID vaccine and I talked to Data and Jordy LaForge. And now I want to go to sleep at like 3 p.m. <laughs> uh, so that was so that was that was probably my that was my favorite like i can't believe that this is what my day was today uh, it was great though it was awesome you know i'm sure you've done that when you've been doing the podcast you've interviewed like these heroes and you're like and now i have to go make dinner you know? yeah, exactly. it's like well back to reality now <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so ryan you know this book has so many things here i imagine there's a lot of stuff that ended up getting left on the cutting room floor or some stuff that just didn't even happen at all uh is there anything that you regret about the book weird question but uh you know anything that you maybe wish you'd done differently with it yeah, I mean, I think that like the book, the book was written from 2020 to, you know, early, early 2022. So like I had seen a little bit of Picard season three as I was writing it and I was able or season two, rather Picard season two. I've not seen Picard season in the three. future. <laughs> uh, I wish. Uh, and so, you know, I regret like just the fact that it had to be written as quickly as it did. Uh, the book was sold when it was sold. The book had to be done when it was done. I saw, I've seen some people say that like, I'm very hyperbolic perhaps. And I, I'm like strongly opinionated. And some of that is just because the book has to keep moving. And so I think that though, in the process of that, I think that there are some places that I probably could have been more nuanced. And I think if I do another edition, I'm pushing for a paperback edition that'll come out in 2024. I think I'll probably, you know, nonfiction writers change their mind. So I think if there's anybody out there that's like, I don't agree with what you said in the book. I don't agree with what you, with the way that you use this quote, or I don't agree, but I'll be like, I might agree with you. You never know. I can change my mind. <laughs> I mean, as someone who's read the book here, I, I, and now having spoken to you through, uh, I was going to say in person, but no, through virtual means. Uh, yes. You know, it's basically the same difference nowadays in this covid pandemic era but uh you know i feel like it's very much written in your voice and i don't see that as a detractor or negative and i really want to make sure my audience understands that too i mean even if something is hyperbolic i think that's part of the charm of the book i mean for me this is like this is going to go in the same spot as my mark cushman books so Thank you know you. i'm putting that's on the same kind of, and, and that's what i really want the audience here to understand is like this really is just a wonderfully uh easy read because a lot of times too star trek books can be especially star trek history there's a lot to go through this is like the perfect way to just get through things. And if you want to go deeper, then you have something like, Kushmore. Right. you know, maybe eventually you'll do like your own encyclopedia book too, of some kind, but uh, oh, you know, man. yeah, that, that's all other undertaking. But you know, yeah. for anybody who's, who has been saying that stuff to you, I will defend you, Ryan, I will set phasers on stun. Well, I'll make sure well, they don't say I, that. No, I guess all I mean is that like, I, I, my favorite, I, I, the people, they'll be like, Oh, you know, like you, this is, you know, I think that this is wrong or, you know, this is maybe a typo and, you know, um, et cetera. And so on. And it's like, for my online articles and stuff that'll happen and you know nine times and nine times out of ten i'll be like yeah you're right (laughs) you know so i think that that's the other thing is that like i 
did a lot of work on this book and there's a lot of research that went into it. And I had some, I paid some fact checkers and there are some famous fact checkers that looked at it and I will not name them um, because that's the whole point. But, you know, I, I did my due diligence, but it's not perfect. And, and neither are those other books, incidentally, you know, like, you know, I'll find errors in like books that were released by Paramount that came out in 96, you know, that have like factual errors in them. You know what I mean? So it's tricky. Uh, these things, Star Trek's a beast and it's tough to get it all. Yeah, I, I used to cover mixed martial arts really heavily uh, for okay. quite, quite some time. And I've interviewed a lot of the same fighters again and again. And, and, you know, I've done my own oral histories for places like bloodyelbow.com or even some other videos I've done on my own. Uh, and I, I interviewed like Ken Shamrock twice and I talked to him about like, uh, I won't even say which fight it was. I talked to him about one of these fights and then I talked to him again a few years later, asked him about the same fight and his answer was totally different. <laughs> so there you go. I, I completely understand what you're talking about. So and I think that's something our, our audience should understand too, is like, you know, oral history is even, you know, you're not always guaranteed a reliable narrator, even if that person was actually there. That's right. And that's the thing is, I, I think I say that in the intro of the book is that there's a lot of narrators and the gospel of Star Trek is told from many angles. So you're always dealing with a little bit of a composite, you know what I mean? Particularly because a lot of people, so I think there are some folks out there that are very, very interested in just like the objective truth. And I'm not sure. I mean, I tried to really avoid myths, like things that have been perpetrated. I tried to avoid not doing that, being like, look, people have said this. Let's unpack it. Is it true? Sometimes, though, it's kind of like, well, it does seem to be what everybody said, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, we kind of have to leave it leave it at that. Um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like you say, people people change their story. So, Ryan, aside from Phasers on Stun, which, again, I'm going to highly recommend my audience checks out. And we're going to have links for that in the show notes. So make sure you guys pick it up. Thanks for a great holiday gift. Just any time of year. Really excellent book. Uh, but you also have something else coming out in 2023 that my listeners are going to like. So uh, go ahead and tell us about that, please. Yeah, I'm doing a book called The Spice Must Flow, The Journey of Dune. I've got my Star Trek button on here. But I've also got a button that says The Spice Must Flow. Um, I'm doing a book that is the history of Dune um from the beginning uh of frank herbert's earliest kind of notions of it as a nonfiction piece um through the earliest publications uh that you know it wasn't a novel first it was a serialized novel published in magazine form um uh through the different books through the different movies through the sci-fi channel miniseries uh the fandom how it influenced science fiction through today so structurally kind of similar to phasers on stun but of course very different <laughs> because it's Dune uh, and it's not it's not like Star Trek. I think that I keep saying that the Star Trek book um, was about radical change and like trying to unpack that radical change, but then also say it somehow fits in this same container, like the same box, all of these iterations. Dune is more about the Dune book is more about contradictions, about just how can something be extremely mainstream like Dune is like the most best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Children of Dune was the first science fiction novel in hardcover to ever be on the New York Times bestseller list ever. And that was the third book in the series. Um, how is that possible that it broke through in such a huge way? And yet it's kind of underground. It's like the most like popular indie thing of all time. And so I'm very interested in that and like how it exists. And so that's just one example of the various contradictions that exist around Dune. Um, and it's also an interesting vector for a lot of other science fiction. Um, and uh, Trek in particular, I was just rewatching season uh, seven of Deep Space Nine. And I was like, wow, Dune. I was like, yeah, like 
Captain Sisko has been like manipulated by the prophets to become the prophet. He's Paul Atreides. I mean, obviously the outcome for Sisko is significantly better, but interesting in this way where he was like, there's like this creepy thing where he's like, you manipulated my mom to become my mom, you know, and like that's not dissimilar to like the Benny Gesserit and and what happens to Paul in the Dune books, where he's like, I can't believe that I was manipulated to become this to become the prophet. And it so it's it, uh the em, you know in Cisco's case, the emissary, but um so that's really interesting. I, I, I that's just like a Star Trek connection. Cisco was the Moadib. Cisco was the Moadib, and a lot of Deep Space Nine, actually, if you look at it, it's similar, right? Like the the Atreides, House of Atreides is sent somewhere that they don't want to go at the beginning. Cisco is sent to Bajor. He doesn't want to go there. But the, then he becomes one with the Bajorans, much like the Fremen. You know, so it's it's interesting of like just like how much Dune influenced something so disparate, like the opposite of Star Trek in many ways. But um, philosophically, I think that similar goals um, of like deconstructing like political systems that are bad and like criticizing them and like thinking about, you know, like non-interference, right? Like all that happens in Dune is interference, <laughs> you know, on on planets. The Bene Gesserit do the opposite of the Prime Directive and they seed all these planets with religious beliefs so they can manipulate them later. So it's like the anti-Prime Directive. And that's really interesting to me. Uh, but yeah, also just like publishing history is really interesting to me. Like the way science fiction kind of came of age in the 60s uh, is really fascinating. And Herbert's a very divisive, controversial figure, much like Roddenberry. Um, you know what I mean? And that's sort of like a, an interesting place to be at. So I'm working on that. Uh, it's a, probably a tiny bit shorter than the Star Trek book. The Star Trek book's about 100,000 words. This will probably be more like 80, I'm guessing. But who's counting? I am. <laughs> I mean, you have to think about these things. Unfortunately, you have to be like, how long is this chapter going to be? You know, uh, you know, my Wrath of Khan chapter in Fader's Stone Stone is like really long, uh, but you have to you have to think about that stuff. Um, so I'm working on that right now, which is a lot of research and a lot of different. The research is very different, right? Like I'm doing a lot of interviews. Like I talked to um, Paul uh, Alec Newman the other day, who was on Star Trek Enterprise. He played Malik uh, in the spoilers in the- fact for this podcast also because uh, I don't think it's going to air yet. But we'll be having Alec in this show also, so stay tuned. Really? For that. Well, yeah. So I just interviewed Alec. I did like an hour with him for my Dune book, and he's like, "I love Star Trek." He like is so pro Star Trek. Still. He really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He he was great. So I, and I love that Dune miniseries. Uh, both of them that he was in. Um, so I'm doing the, those kinds of things where I'm interviewing the actors and stuff. And I've already interviewed Timothy Chalamet and, um, you know, Rebecca Ferguson and stuff. So, I mean, I have some of the newer actors, but um, it's also a lot of like calling research libraries and being like, hey, can you can you photocopy these letters that Frank Herbert wrote in 1959 and send them to me? Uh, <laughs> so it's a lot of that kind of research, like deep archive letters, looking at what people said in correspondence and stuff like that. So that it's fun. It's hard. Um, and then That's I'm right. going to, the cool part too about this job too, is that you do get to have access to that kind of thing. And you're able to like really dig in and find stuff that the average person is going to have access to. Well, no, no, no. Everybody has access to this stuff. Cause you call up a research library. The and access just is like, the right word, but you have the drive to actually look at drive. It. I mean, I, I, anybody can do what I'm doing. That's the funny thing. It's not impossible, but yeah, you have to kind of like know how to ask sometimes, but yeah, when it comes to like public records at libraries, it's actually sometimes, you're just talking to like a nice librarian and sometimes that can be life-changing in terms of a uh, book research. But yeah. And then after that, I'm, I'm working on a possible novel and then uh, maybe a book about star Wars, but that's like maybe three years out. And for folks who want to stay up to date on all the things that you're doing, star Trek, Dune, star Wars, anything else in between, how can they do that? Yeah. Mostly inverse, you know, like most of my star Trek stuff shows up on inverse. Uh, you know, I had an interview with Mike McMahon that came out today about the new season of Lower Decks. I have a uh, interview I did with Tawny Newsome that comes out tomorrow. 
Um, so by that, by the time this runs, those, that'll be a couple weeks from now, probably. Wild, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I mean, I usually do a, like a weekly interview for all the new shows, you know, like as they're airing, um, almost always. I definitely did for Strange New Worlds. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm starting to write for Esquire a little bit. I interviewed Anson Mount for the, um, I did a big profile on Anson for the finale of Strange New Worlds. Um, and I inter- just interviewed Joel Kinnaman for For All Mankind. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, those are the places, uh, Den of Geek, I still write for, um, and then fatherly, I do do some sci-fi stuff there, but it's usually a little bit more mainstreamy. So like I did a Hayden Christensen profile, you know, on, on there. Cause that's like, everybody knows who Hayden is. I don't do as much Trek at, at fatherly. Um, but, uh, that may change. You never know. I mean, I'm actually pretty excited now to read about that Hayden Christensen piece. Listen, man, Hayden Christensen was great. <laughs> yeah, very, very yeah. Actually, really maligned. He's very, he's very nice guy. I would love to see Hayden Christensen in a Star Trek movie. I don't see you know any reason I mean? he shouldn't be there. So let's make it happen. I don't think he needs to be in a Star Trek movie, don't you? Like, I feel like that there needs to be a big crossover because there's so few of them. Who did I interview recently? Who's done it? Well, Jason Isaacs, yeah, was in Star, Star Wars Rebels. He's probably the biggest one, right? And if had had he been in Obi Wan Kenobi as that character, that would have been it, right? Like then Jason Isaacs would have been. I love Jason Isaac. He's so great. Well, a reminder once again, folks, the book is Phasers on Stun, and uh, I'm not going to move it around too much, or else it's going to like completely destroy my Zoom background, but check it out again. Reminder, we're going to have a link for that in the show notes, so you can pick it up from there, and uh, definitely recommend you do. It really is a great book uh, for whether you're a hardcore fan or a new person just getting into it. I mean, really, it's it's definitely up there, Ryan. You did a great job with this, and uh, I'm, you know, to be quite honest, I'm also now getting into Dune a little bit more, so I got to like do all my homework, do my due diligence, and read all the Dunes and watch them all, but when I do... I'm going to be coming for your book. Because I think by the time it comes out, I'll probably be done with all that stuff. It's a lot to go through. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, the yeah. audiobooks help. <laughs> That's all Good thinking. Good thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, Ryan, thank you so much for telling us all about the book today and all about just everything that you're working on. It's been really great to chat with you. So uh, thank you. And as always, as you say here, live long and prosper. Thanks, Matthew. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond, and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.